Tonight we plan to cover Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, we transition into something new in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, In some ways, you could say that the first four chapters of Matthew are somewhat introductory, right? We're introduced to Jesus, we're introduced to some of the circumstances around his birth, we're introduced to his genealogy, we're introduced to his baptism, to the very beginnings of his ministry. Now, excuse me, then after that, we transitioned in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, to what Matthew presented to us as sort of the core of Jesus' teaching message, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't have any doubt was a literal sermon delivered on a literal hillside before a literal audience, but, but I think it goes beyond that as well. I think that in many ways, this was the message that Jesus presented to followers and potential followers about what the nature of his kingdom was like and what citizens of his kingdom would look like. I think that's a dominant theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so I definitely believe that he preached it, as I said, at one time, one place on that hillside, just as Matthew describes. I think he preached aspects of this sermon many times in his entire extended preaching ministry throughout the region of Galilee. It's as if Matthew wanted us to say, this is a great example of the teaching ministry of Jesus. Jesus went about all the villages, all the areas, all over the region of Galilee, and he preached and he taught, and this is an example. Now that having ended at Matthew chapter 7, now in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew wants to explain to us that Jesus was not only a teacher, he was also a doer. He was a man who did great things. And that's why Matthew chapter 8 is action-packed. We're going to find it full. So let's break right into it here, verses 1 and 2. And when he had come down from the mountain, right, the mountain where he taught the, the Sermon on the Mount, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, the miracles of Jesus attracted a lot of attention, but so did his teaching ministry. So when he comes down from the mountain of teaching, who's following? Great multitudes. Did you notice that? Now, sometimes we think that it was the miracle-working ministry of Jesus that attracted great multitudes, and his teaching ministry put them to sleep. You know, people were bored by the, no, no, not at all. It's true that his miracle-working ministry attracted great multitudes, but so did his teaching ministry. Now, I want you to know something. As we compare the events of this chapter with the record of Mark or Luke, we find a different order and a different chronology to these events. Matthew arranged his material here according to topics and themes, not so much according to chronology. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll just make it very clear to you. Matthew is not so chronological in the presentation of his gospel. So again, if you're looking for chronological accuracy, you should rely more on the gospels of Mark and Luke. Although I will say that whenever you're trying to block out the chronological flow of the ministry of Jesus, you're always going to have some problems. There's always going to be some difficulty. But what I want you to understand is more than Mark and Luke, Matthew takes things out of their chronology and presents them together so as to give us a topical or a more thematic approach to Jesus' ministry. Because I want you to notice, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, it was all teaching. In chapter 8, it's almost all miracles. 
And I don't think that the ministry of Jesus was so much stop, start like that, right? Well, today I'm only teaching. Well, tomorrow I'm only doing miracles. It didn't work like that, right? They were all interspersed, but Matthew's presentation of the life of Jesus follows more of a thematic or topical approach. Of course, this brings to mind an important foundational verse for Matthew's gospel. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, Now Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and disease among the people. That's sort of Matthew's summary statement of the ministry of Jesus. He went around teaching, he went around preaching, and he went around healing all kinds of people. So he's told us about the teaching ministry of Jesus, right? Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're going to hear about his healing ministry. And how we are confronted right here in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 8 is where it says, Behold, a leper came and worshipped him. You know, in the ancient world, leprosy was a terrible, destructive disease. And might I say, it still is in some parts of the world. The ancient leper, though, had absolutely no hope of improvement. Today, in modern-day leprosy, there's drugs, there's medicines where if they can be brought to the person who's afflicted, they can help. Sometimes the right medicines aren't brought to those person, they live a very miserable existence. But in the ancient world, these medicines did not exist. The ancient leper had no hope of improvement. So this leper came to Jesus with a great sense of need and desperation. I like what William Barclay says about the development of leprosy. Are you ready for this? I'm quoting him now. Leprosy might begin with the loss of all sensation in some part of the body. The nerve trunks are affected. The muscles waste away. The tendons contract until the hands are like claws. There follows ulceration of the hands and the feet. Then comes the progressive loss of fingers and toes until in the end a whole hand or a whole foot may drop off. The duration of that kind of leprosy is anything from 20 to 30 years. It is a kind of terrible progressive death in which a man dies by inches. It's a terrible death. It's a terrible life. Now, according to Jewish law and customs, someone had to keep six feet or two meters away from a leper. If the wind was blowing toward a person from a leper, they had to keep 150 feet or 45 meters away from the leper. There was only one thing in the Jewish mind that was more defiling than a leper. Do you know what that is? A dead body. That was the only thing in the Jewish mind that was even more defiling than a leper. And for all these reasons, the condition of leprosy is a model of sin and its effects. It's a contagious, debilitating disease that corrupts its victims, and it makes the victim essentially dead while still alive. And it follows that almost universally, society and religious people, they hated lepers. They scorned them. Rabbis especially despised lepers. And they saw them as people under the special judgment of God. They thought that lepers deserved no pity, no mercy. Every time a rabbi or a religious person in Jesus' day saw a leper, they said, there's a person under the unique judgment of God. And when we understand this, 
don't you see how amazing and wonderful it is that this leper came to Jesus? This leper came to Jesus all by himself. And he came to Jesus despite many things that would discourage him from coming to Jesus. I mean, he knew how terrible his problem was. How easy would it have been for him to say, you know what, my problem is beyond the reach of Jesus, why bother? He, he knew that other people gave up on him as having a hopeless condition. C- could you imagine the leper coming, well, should I go to Jesus, maybe he can help you. He can't help you. Leprosy is hopeless. What, why would you even bother? He had no one who either would or could take him to Jesus. He had to go by himself. He had no previous example that we know of of Jesus healing a leper to give him hope. It's not like he could say, well, you know, this guy, he's healed 10 lepers already. You know, I'll be number 11. As far as we know, this was the first healing of a leper in Jesus's ministry. He had no promise that Jesus would heal him, right? Was Jesus walking about saying, hey, any lepers, I promise to heal you. No promise from Jesus. He had no invitation from Jesus. No invitation from the disciples. It's not like one of the disciples saw this leper standing afar and said, hey, come, sir, you looked in bad shape. Come to my Messiah. He can help you. Nothing like that. And he must have felt very ashamed and very alone in the crowd. But what did he do? Notice that it says right there, He came and worshipped him. Despite his desperate condition, this man not only begged Jesus for healing, but he also worshipped him. He rendered unto Jesus divine worship. Now, by the way, let's pretend that Jesus was merely a prophet, right? Let's pretend that Jesus was merely a good man or maybe the best man on the earth. What would a good man do if somebody came and started worshipping him? No, no, no. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. What would a prophet do if somebody came and started? No, no, no. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. The fact that Jesus received this worship says a lot about his deity. I like something that Charles Spurgeon said right here on this point. One of these little lines from Spurgeon that's just precious. He said, those who call Jesus Lord and do not worship him are more diseased than this leper was. Well, look what this leper said. Verse 2, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you understand what he said there? The leper had no doubt whatsoever about the ability of Jesus to heal. His only question was whether or not Jesus was willing to heal. And by this, we understand that this leper had tremendous confidence in the power of Jesus. Way back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5 is where the story is. Uh, a Syrian commander named Naaman was afflicted with leprosy. And so he came to the king of Israel. I think his name was Jehoram at that time. And the king of Israel, Jehoram, received this Syrian commander. Now, the, the Syrians and the Israelites were not friends. They were enemies. But this enemy commander came, and this is what the Syrian commander said. He said, listen, king of Israel, Jehoram, I've got leprosy. You know that that means I have a death sentence. You you know that I'm condemned to a miserable existence. But I've heard that there's a prophet in your land and I can be healed of my leprosy. Now, when Naaman came to Jehoram, Jehoram knew that he had no power to help him. And so this is what he said. Notice, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to heal me of his leprosy? Do, Do you see what he's saying? 
He's saying that healing a leper is on the same par as raising the dead. Can I kill and make alive? Well, just as soon as I could do that, I could heal somebody of leprosy. That's how untreatable this disease was. Leprosy was so hopeless in the ancient world that healing a leper was compared to raising the dead, yet this leper knew that all Jesus needed was to be willing. That's all he needed. Jesus, if you're willing, if you want to, I know that you can heal me. Now, this leper was sure, excuse me, this leper was not sure that Jesus was willing to use his power for the leper's benefit, right? Well, Jesus, I know you have the power, but I don't know if you're willing to use it for my benefit. You know, there's rich people in this world, right? I don't know them personally, but I know their names, right? Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, whatever the name is, that guy who owns IKEA, you know, these great rich, rich, rich people. Now, you know what? They got a lot of money. They're just not willing to use any of it to help me, right? It's not a problem of them not having the resources. It's them having the willingness problem. Well, this guy knows that Jesus has the, the resources. What he doesn't know is if Jesus is willing. Did you understand that men more easily believe in miraculous power than in miraculous love? This guy can believe Jesus has the power. Oh, yeah, he's got the power. But does he love me enough to do it? That's what he was not sure about. And so he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Do you understand by that? He sought more than healing. He wanted cleansing. Now, of course, when he say cleansing, he means cleansing from the, the stain of leprosy upon his body. But he also means from all of the terrible effects of this disease upon his life and upon his soul. You know, leprosy would stain a man's mind. Leprosy would mean that you would have nothing but constant rejection from society every day of your life. That's got to make you feel pretty bad after a while, right? That's got to put a lot of just dirt upon your soul. This man wanted to be clean. Now, one more thing before we go to verse 3, and I'm embarrassed to say we've spent almost 20 minutes just on two verses here. But look, one thing I've got to say about verse 2 before we move on. This is the first place in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is called Lord. Now, that title was particularly meaningful in light of the fact that the word Lord was used to translate the Hebrew name Yahweh in the Bibles that they would use in that day. When they would read the Old Testament and where the word Yahweh would appear, they wouldn't say the word Yahweh, they wouldn't say that name, they felt that that name was so holy that it shouldn't be pronounced. But what they would do is that they would substitute the name Lord instead. Now Matthew wrote his gospel to an audience familiar with these Jewish customs. They would be familiar with the Jewish context of that title Lord. It meant a lot for this man to come to Jesus and call him Lord. So verse 3, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now this was a very bold and compassionate touch from Jesus. The idea seems to be was that the leper kept his distance from Jesus. Right? Remember, he wasn't used to getting within six feet or two meters of anybody, right? 
But, but Jesus reached out and he touched the man. Now, you need to understand that it was against all the ceremonial law to touch a leper. If you touched a leper and the leper was ceremonially unclean perpetually because of his disease, if you touched a leper, or in fact, if you touched anything that the leper touched, you became ceremonially unclean. So Jesus is, is sinning. He's doing something wrong. He reaches out and he touches the leper. But as soon as he touches him, immediately the leper is cleansed. Isn't that beautiful? You know, if you want to make a spiritual analogy out of this, it's very powerful, right? When the pure, sinless Jesus touches the poor sinner like me, the man whose life is as full of sin as that leper was full of leprosy, as he reaches forth and touches me, my sin doesn't defile Jesus. No, his purity cleanses me. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what I find interesting about this is how Jesus healed him. Did, did Jesus have to use a touch to heal this leper? No. Jesus could have spoken a word. He could have thought a thought. He could have winked his eye and the man would have been healed, right? But what did he do? He touched him. He healed the leper with a touch because that is what the leper needed. And that's not all he did. When he touched him, do you notice what he said? He said, look, in the movie that runs in my head, don't you see Jesus just looking this leper square in the eyes? By the way, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus looked at him with compassion. When's the last time you think that leper saw a compassionate look in somebody's eyes? Jesus looked at that leper with compassion. He touches him, and what does he say? I am willing. Be cleansed. You, you want to know if I was willing? Listen, let me tell you, Mr. Leper, I am willing. I've answered your question. By the way, this gives us a starting point for the times when we wonder if Jesus is willing to heal. Don't we often wonder that? Somebody's sick, somebody's afflicted. It seems lately I've heard of many friends and acquaintances who just, I, I hear of one person with bone cancer, I hear another person with colon cancer, I hear another person with breast cancer that's metastasized throughout their body, this person, that, and it just, uh, it, it just seems overwhelming, and he just, oh Lord, you know, where's your healing power? And when we pray for people like that, or when we're afflicted like this, now, isn't it honestly, we don't doubt Jesus' ability to heal, right? We fully believe that he can. Don't we honestly wonder, though? Lord, are you willing? Do you want to? Let me tell you how I process this. And look, I, I'm just sharing with you from my heart. Uh, I'm, you know, this, this is just from my heart. Receive it or don't receive it as seems right to you from the Spirit of God. But my general tendency is I assume that Jesus is willing to heal unless he shows differently. Now, sometimes he does. But unless Jesus shows differently, why wouldn't I assume that he would want to heal? Now, I would just say, if you want to be healed by God, assume that he wants to heal you, but be open to if he would tell you differently. You know what pattern I base this on? I base this on with what happened with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Right? He had some kind of bodily affliction, some kind of physical problem. And he called out to the Lord that the Lord would deliver him from this physical infirmity, this thorn in the flesh. And, and the whole point of it is, Paul just prayed, assuming that God would heal him. 
And he prayed, and nothing happened. And you get the feeling, Paul said, well, that's strange, Lord. But healed me before. What? Why not now? So he prayed again. Nothing happened. Boy, that, Lord, what's going on? Lord, I'll pray again. Uh, you usually want to heal me, don't you? And the third time, God came to him and said, Paul, I'm not going to give you my healing. I'm going to give you something greater. I'm going to give you my all-sufficient grace, and my grace is sufficient for you. Now look, I, I just think that that's general. Why not assume that God wants to heal? But if God wants to show us differently, then we'll certainly listen, right? Honestly, I think that's better than the alternative. The alternative is basically going in there with the idea, well, God does want to heal. I'll only believe he wants to heal if he tells me that he does. Why well, I say, Lord, I'll just assume that you do until you show me differently. Well, in the case of this leper, do you see what the result was at the end of verse 3? Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. The former leper's life was changed forever. He was not only healed, but as he requested, he was cleansed. You know what I love about What did Jesus just finish saying in Matthew chapter 7? We talked about it last week when we studied together. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. And that was certainly true for this former leper. Now, by the way, this is the first individual healing described by Matthew. Previously, in Matthew chapter 4, we were told of Jesus' healing ministry in a very general sense. But this is the first individual example of Jesus' healing ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 4, And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And Jesus often commanded people to be quiet about their healing or some miraculous work that Jesus had done for them. He did this because he wanted to keep down the excitement level of the crowds until the proper time for his formal revelation to Israel. You know, there was a formal day of Jesus' revelation unto Israel, a, a day when he was presented as Messiah the Prince. We'll talk about it later on. I believe it was the fulfillment of the great prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, or at least this portion of it. And so Jesus didn't want messianic excitement to get too hot, to get too severe until the appropriate time. This also shows us something else, that Jesus' miracles were not primarily calculated to make him famous or a celebrity. Now, they certainly did give testimony to his ministry, but Jesus didn't primarily heal to become famous. No, no, no. Jesus healed more so to meet the needs of specific individuals and to demonstrate the evident power of the Messiah in the setting of love and care for the personal needs of humble people. Now, Jesus told this man, don't tell anybody. Just show yourself to the priest. Jesus commanded that the man go as a testimony to the priest and fulfill what was commanded in the Mosaic Law. You'll find it in Leviticus chapter 14 as to what they're supposed to do for the ceremony for cleansing leper. Now, in Israel at this time, there seemed to be a fairly good number of lepers, right? They're coming to Jesus fairly often. Let me ask you a question. How many of those lepers were healed before the ministry of Jesus came along? Oh, about zero. Well, when's the last time 
a leper came to one of the priests at the temple and said, Hi, I just got healed of my leprosy. I'd like to perform the ceremony that Leviticus chapter 14 says I'm supposed to perform when I'm cleansed of leprosy. They'd say, We've never done that one before. Go blow the dust off the scrolls of Leviticus chapter 14 and let's dig in and try to figure out how we do this one. What an amazing testimony that would have been to the priests. They would have known that there was somebody in the land who was healing lepers. By the way, going to the priest would also bring the former leper back into society. It was his way of making it official that he really was healed, that he really was cleansed. And Jesus wanted the healing of this man's disease to have as much benefit as possible. So he says, don't tell anybody, just goes to the priest. Now, Mark tells us that the leper did not obey Jesus, and instead he immediately went out and began to proclaim it freely. Bad leper. You should have listened to Jesus. He healed you. But he couldn't help himself, right? He was so excited about what Jesus had done for him. And if this was the disobedience of the leper, well, listen, if this was his worst disobedience after his healing, then we're very happy for this man, right? To talk about Jesus when Jesus told you to keep it quiet. If that's your worst sin, you're doing pretty good. All right, now, verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, A centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now, Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that Capernaum is the city where Jesus lived. It says, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. So this was Jesus's, well, not exactly his hometown. You would say his hometown was Nazareth. That's where he grew up. But this is where he was living. This was his city of residence. And when he was there in Capernaum, what happened? A centurion came to him. Now, this centurion was very obviously a Gentile because a centurion was an officer in the Roman army. Most every Jew under the Roman occupation in Jesus' day had a reason to hate this centurion. Yet this man came to Jesus, came to this Jewish teacher for help. And significantly, he didn't come for a selfish reason. He came on behalf of his servant. Now, this centurion had an unusual attitude towards his slave. You need to understand, in the ancient world, you know how they referred to slaves? As living tools. That's what a slave was. A slave was a tool just as much as a hammer was, right? And what do you do when your hammer breaks? You you just throw it away, right? You get another one. Who cares? You don't keep on to it. Well, unless it's a really good one and you think you can repair it. But for the most part, you don't hold on to it. You get rid of it. Well, in the thinking of that day, a slave was a human tool. When it was broken, get rid of it and get something else. This centurion had a very unusual attitude towards a slave. You know, under Roman law, a master had the right to kill his slave. And it was expected that the master would kill his slave if the slave became ill or injured to the point where he could no longer work. This centurion was a very compassionate man. By the way, did you know that whenever the New Testament mentions a centurion, and to my count, I count seven different centurions that are listed in the New Testament, they're always presented as honorable good men. Interesting. And so what did the centurion do? He came, he asked Jesus, but not only asking, did you see what it says there in verses 5 and 6? It says he was pleading with him. This shows that the centurion did not make a casual request. Matthew describes him as 
pleading with Jesus on behalf of his servant. Now, by the way, if you notice, let me read it again to you. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Did he ask Jesus to do anything? No. All he did was say what the situation was. And it's if Jesus read his sorrow as being a request for help. And Jesus went to answer because it says right here in verse 7, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And notice what Jesus said. I will come. I'm going to come to your house and heal your servant. Now notice this. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. Jesus did not hesitate for a moment to say, hey, Mr. Centurion, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to heal your servant. And I half wish that the centurion would have said, well, come on over. You know why? Because according to Jewish custom, not the law of Moses, but Jewish custom, according to Jewish custom, a good Jew was not allowed to go into the house of a Gentile. Now, that isn't Jewish law. It's not the law of Moses. But it was certainly the custom of the day. And Jesus had a way of challenging those customs, right? Didn't he challenge many of their Sabbath customs? Now, he kept the Sabbath law, but he challenged the customs. And Jesus would have never broken the Mosaic law. Jesus was perfect in his fulfillment of the law. But yet he challenged their traditions and customs. And I almost wish the centurion would have said, Come on over, Jesus. Yet, I have a feeling that this Gentile centurion know that this would have put Jesus in an awkward situation. Did you notice what he said? He said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. See, most Jews believed that a Gentile home was not worthy of them. And the centurion supposed that a great rabbi and teacher like Jesus would consider his home to be unworthy. I love this. I love the sensitivity. Here's this rugged military man, right? And he's sensitive towards his servant, right? And he's sensitive towards Jesus. Jesus, look, thank you for wanting to come on my house. I don't want to put you into an awkward spot. You don't have to. You just say the word from right here, and I know that my servant will be healed. That's what he said. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. The centurion fully understood that Jesus' healing power was not some sort of magic trick that required the magician's presence, right? The healing power of Jesus wasn't like some sleight of hand, some abracadabra that Jesus had to be in the room and do a certain thing with his hands or a certain thing with his voice or clap this or dance, dance that or something. No, 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 no. Instead, he knew that Jesus had true authority and he could command that things would be done even outside of his immediate presence. This centurion showed tremendous faith in the word of Jesus. He understood that Jesus could heal with his word just as much as he could heal with a touch. By the way, don't you love what he says? For I also am a man under authority having soldiers under me. This centurion knew something about the military chain of command and how the orders of one in authority were to be unquestionably obeyed. 
he saw that Jesus had at least that much authority. Jesus, I'm just a centurion, and I'm under authority from people above, and I've got people who are under authority to me. I know that you at least have my much authority, right? You, uh, you, you at least have the kind of authority I do, probably way more. But I know that when you say it, it'll be done. That's how they thought of it. That Roman centurion, he received his power up through the chain of command from Caesar. Because Caesar commanded the generals. And the generals commanded their, I don't know, lieutenants or whatever they were called. And the lieutenants commanded the people under them all the way down to the centurion. So you could trace the centurion's power all the way back to Caesar. And the centurion knew that you could trace Jesus' power back to God himself. That's why verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. You know, this man's understanding of spiritual authority made Jesus marvel. His simple confidence in the ability of Jesus to speak a word and it would be done, it showed a faith that was free of any kind of superstitious reliance on merely external things. This was truly great faith worthy of praise. You know, later on in the ministry of Jesus, the ruler of a synagogue comes to Jesus and says, please, my daughter is almost dead. Come to my home and heal. And and Jesus, you got to come to my house and heal my daughter. Why didn't the ruler of the synagogue say, Jesus, just stop where you are. You say the word and my daughter will be healed. He didn't do that. This Roman centurion does. That's why Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus considered the faith of this Gentile centurion who was a living symbol of Jewish oppression. And he thought it greater than any faith he had seen among the people of Israel. And what does he say? Oh, what a beautiful promise that Jesus gives right here in this verse, in verse 11, where he says, Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the fact that there was such faith in a Gentile caused Jesus to announce, are you ready for this? That there would be Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven. Shock! I want to tell you, that the Jewish people listening to Jesus say this, some of them would have almost fallen over when they heard Jesus say this. Gentiles in heaven? You've got to be kidding me, Jesus. I I I thought that God, and by the way, this was a teaching of some rabbis in Jesus' day. There were some rabbis, I don't want to say all, but certainly some taught this, that God created the Gentiles for one reason, to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's what some rabbis in Jesus' day taught. And so for Jesus to say, hey, listen, there's going to be Gentiles in heaven sitting down with that great messianic banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And that was a very radical idea to the Jewish people in Jesus' day. They assumed that that great messianic banquet was closed to the Gentiles, and it was open to the Jews only. By the way, did you notice what else he says? He says, but some of the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. Now, for those who didn't fall over at hearing the Gentiles would be in, they probably completely fell over at hearing this. Because Jesus tells them two very radical things. The first radical thing is there's going to be some Gentiles there. The second radical thing is not all Jews are going to make it to heaven. What? Listen again. Some rabbis in Jesus' day taught this. They taught that Abraham stood at the entrance of hell. And he looked at every person who went into hell just to make sure that none of his descendants by accident went into hell. Whoa, whoa, you're one of mine. Turn around, you go to heaven. You don't go into hell. That's what some rabbis in Jesus' day taught. Listen, Jesus here is presenting something that's very radical. That you're not automatically damned because you're a Gentile and you're not automatically saved because you're a Jew. There could hardly be a more radical statement that Jesus could give to the people of his day. There's two things I want you to notice here. First of all, Jesus talks about heaven. You're right. Let me read that to you again. He says, Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know what that tells you about heaven? It tells you a few things right there. First of all, it tells you that heaven is a place of rest. You sit down in heaven. Secondly, it tells us that heaven is a place of good company to sit with. We enjoy the friendship of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in heaven. We're going to really get to meet those guys in heaven. We're going to sit down with them in heaven. Heaven's also a place with, did you notice it? With many people. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. Jesus said many people are going to come into heaven. And it's a place with people from all over the earth, from east and from west, they will come into heaven. And might I say, it is a certain place. Do you see what Jesus said? You read it yourself. And I say to you that many might come from the east and the west. Did he say that? No, many will come from the east and the west. Now, so Jesus talked about heaven, told us something about it. But we can't hide the fact either that Jesus also spoke about what? About hell. I'm not going to go into great depths here, but let me just say this. That Jesus was unafraid to speak of hell. And in fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. I I like something that Spurgeon said on this point. He said, there are some ministers who never mention anything about hell. I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you do not love the Lord Jesus you will be sent to that place which is not polite to mention. Spurgeon says of this guy, he ought not to have been allowed to preach again, I'm sure, if he could not use plain words. Listen, if the only way you talk about hell is to refer to it as the place which is not polite to mention, you're not doing a service to people, right? If we could be impressed with the reality of heaven and with the reality of hell, it would impact our lives very deeply. Verses 14 and 15. 
Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. And we see a couple notable things here. Number one, we see Peter was married. He has a mother-in-law. That means he was married and his wife actually had a mother. The first pope was a married man. The first pope didn't fulfill the vows of celibacy or the celibacy of the priesthood as the Roman Catholic Church would later talk about. By the way, it also shows us something else. It shows that Peter apparently liked his mother-in-law, right? She must have been a nice woman. So Jesus comes in, he touched her hand, and the fever left her. I find this interesting. Her sickness was much less severe than the leper, right? We might think, well, listen, don't bother Jesus with those little things, right? You've got a fever? Boo-hoo. Just get over it, okay? Leper, you, Mr. Leper, come over. You know, Jesus will see you now. No, no, no. Jesus healed the great diseases. He healed the small diseases. But the other wonderful thing, you saw it in here, right? Verse 15, what happens? As soon as she's healed, she arose and served them. Isn't that a wonderful response for anybody who's been touched by Jesus' power? She immediately begins to serve. Serving Jesus is a wonderful evidence that you have been restored to spiritual health. There is her face is beaming. She's filled with gratitude. She's grinning from ear to ear. She brings forth water. She washes their feet. She serves them at the table. You could say that the very moment that Jesus saves a soul, he gives that soul strength for the kind of service that he wants them to do. And that's what the woman did. Verse 16. Now when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. They brought to him many. Now, I don't know, I can't prove it from this text, but as you read this, don't you have the idea that Jesus dealt with these people individually? That it's not like he, uh, they brought him a great group of people and, and he waved something over the crowd and they were all healed. Okay, good, go home now. You know, all right, uh, group 72, come over now, front and center. You're healed. Okay, bye. No. Isn't the whole feel of this is that Jesus ministered to them individually, one by one, not in some kind of cold assembly line procedure, but he healed them. And why? Notice here, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah. Now, Matthew rightly understood this as a partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, which primarily refers to spiritual healing, but also definitely includes physical healing. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. In this, Matthew showed Jesus as the true Messiah who delivered his people from the bondage of sin and the effects of a fallen world. And it says it very plainly there, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The provision for our healing, both physical healing and spiritual healing, it was made by the sufferings, by the stripes of Jesus. And this physical dimension of our healing is partially realized now but finally only in resurrection. I think this teaches us two things. First of all, I believe 
that as part of the work of Jesus on the cross, he promises every believer perfect bodily healing. I absolutely believe that. And the ultimate fulfillment of that we call resurrection. That is when our salvation is complete. And this is purchased. It's paid for by the work of Jesus on the cross. But it shows us something else as well. It shows us that the healing work of our Savior cost Jesus something. It's not as if he had a magic bag of healing pixie dust and he just drew out of it and threw it over the crowd. Oh, be healed, be healed. It cost Jesus something. Our healing was paid for by his sufferings. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Don't you think it's very interesting, just this section that we see in the first 17 verses of this chapter. You see different people being healed, right? You have a Jew who had no social or religious privileges, right? The leper. You have a Gentile officer of the army that occupied and oppressed Israel. You have a woman that was related to one of Jesus' devoted followers. And then you have unnamed multitudes. That's a pretty diverse crowd, don't you think? And then you have that their requests were made in very different ways. One of them brought a direct request from the sufferer, right? The leper comes and he says, please heal me. On the other one, the request is made by one man for another man. You know, it wasn't the sick servant that came to Jesus. It was his boss, the centurion. It was made in faith on behalf of a suffering man. You could say that uh, no request was made in the case of Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus came to her. We don't have any evidence that, that Peter said, hey, come heal her, or, or that the mother-in-law said this. Jesus came upon her and said, I want to heal you out of compassion. And then finally, you have many sufferers being brought to Jesus with different kinds of faith. And then you have Jesus using a touch that was forbidden with the leper. You have him using a word that was spoken from afar. You have him using a tender touch upon Peter's mother-in-law. And then you have using a variety of unnamed methods. You know what I think this shows us? In part, it shows us that God loves to show his sovereignty in healing. He's not going to put it in a formula or a box. Fulfill these three things and you'll get your healing. No, no, no. Jesus deliberately mixed it up so much just so that we recognize that he is sovereign over healing. Now, when we come to verse 18, we come to a portion where Jesus now will begin to speak on discipleship. Let's take a look at these few verses here. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All right, Jesus is increasing in popularity, right? Isn't that what verse 18 tells us? The great multitudes were around Jesus. Jesus didn't follow the crowds. Jesus didn't try to make the crowds bigger and bigger. In some ways, it seemed like he tried to avoid the multitudes that were around him. Yet, yet, this man comes to him and he says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Listen, that's quite an offer, isn't it? With the miracles associated with the ministry of Jesus, following Jesus might have seemed to be very glamorous. Wow, following this amazing man who works such stupendous miracles. 
Jesus said, Layman, let me tell you what it's like to follow me. He says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, did Jesus tell the man, no, you can't follow me? No, he didn't say that, but he told him the truth. He didn't paint a glamorized picture of what it was to follow him. He didn't say, yes, come follow me. You'll say miracles here and miracles there and this and that. Boy, it's amazing. Jesus said, listen, do you understand what it's like to follow me? I don't know where I'm going to spend the night from night to night. I got a lot of friends. They let me stay at their houses. But I don't have my house of my own. Very interesting that this is the opposite of techniques that are used by many evangelists today. Many evangelists today want to make it seem that following Jesus is as easy as possible. And yet when this man came to Jesus, he said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you understand what it's really like to follow me? And what did this man do? Well, apparently he turned away, right? I find this fascinating. The reason this man turned away from Jesus was because Jesus lived a very simple life by faith, trusting his Father for every need without any kind of reserves of material resources, right? Jesus didn't have a big bank account, didn't have suitcases everywhere he went, you know, didn't have lavish homes. He relied on the generosity of other people. Now, you never have the impression of Jesus begging, right? but yet he was provided for. It seems to me like he lived an okay life, right? But yet it was a life that had to live every day trusting in the guidance and the provision of his heavenly father. Now, a spiritual man would have looked at that and said, that is exactly the kind of man I want to follow. There is a man who's trusting God for his daily needs That's the kind of man I want to follow. A spiritual man would have said, yes, I'm in Jesus, but not this man. Very interesting. Well, notice here, verses 21 and 22. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, please don't get the wrong understanding here. This man did not ask for permission to dig a grave for his father and roll his dead father's corpse into the grave and bury it over. No, no, no. Actually, he wanted to, according to that ancient manner of speaking, he wanted to remain in his father's house and care for him until his father died. Jesus, I'll follow you as soon as I'm done with my family obligations. My father's dead. We've buried him in the ground, and then I'll be free to follow you. Now, how long would it take? Well, it's obviously an indefinite period, right? It's not until next week or next month or maybe even next year. Jesus, I'll follow you when I'm free from my family obligations. This man wanted to follow Jesus, but not just yet. He knew that it was good. He knew that he should do it, but he felt that there was a good reason why he should not do it now. Very interesting. The first guy that came to Jesus was too quick to promise, right? The second guy who comes to Jesus was too slow in performing. So what does Jesus say? He says, listen, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
Jesus pressed the man to follow him now and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must not be put ahead of following Jesus, that Jesus must come first. I find it very interesting that Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples. He was more interested in quality than in quantity. By the way, can't you also see that Jesus was just being honest? This is what it means to follow him. You want to follow me? You follow me now. Not for some distant day off in the future. You want to follow me? Then listen, understand that it means you've got to live a life by faith, just like I live. That's what it means to follow me. He's just being honest with these people who said they wanted to follow him. Verse 23. Now when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Okay, so they get into a boat. They're in the village of Capernaum, which is right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They get into a boat and like many Galileans, Jesus was familiar with boats. He was familiar with life on this fairly large lake. And then suddenly, a great tempest arose on the lake. The Sea of Galilee is well known for its sudden, violent storms. And the severity of this storm was evident in the fact that the disciples, many of whom were experienced fishermen, right? They were terrified. And they cried out, Lord, save us, we're perishing. There was something about this storm that frightened even these experienced sailors. What made it even worse? They looked down at Jesus and what he's doing? He's asleep. The disciples were desperate, but Jesus was asleep. Don't you think it must have seemed strange to them that Jesus could sleep in the midst of such a great tempest? Now, by the way, one Greek commentator named Bruce, he said that the grammar of the phrase, but he was asleep, conveys what he calls a dramatic contrast. The storm raged, the disciples panicked, but he was asleep. And you know, that's impressive in two ways. We're impressed by the fact that he needed to sleep. Doesn't this show his true humanity? Jesus became tired. He would sometimes need to catch sleep wherever he was able to, even in very unlikely places. This is an exhausted man after a busy day of ministry, just trying to catch some sleep wherever he could. But secondly, we are impressed by the fact that he could sleep. His mind, his heart was so much at peace that Jesus could sleep. Isn't that the sign of a very restful mind, a very peaceful heart? Even in the midst of a storm, Jesus could sleep. So what does he do? Verse 26. He said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Don't you love this? The disciples are, are panicked. Jesus, we're perishing. The waves are washing over the walls of the boat. We're going to go down. Jesus, get up and help us. And Jesus looks, gets up, looks around at the storm. He sees the water raging. He sees the water blowing or blowing into the boat and, and sloshing over the sides of the boat. He sees the, the, the waves crashing. He sees all the, the calamity all around him. And he looks at all of that and he goes, you know what? That can all wait a minute. Let me talk to you disciples. Isn't that amazing? 
that the first thing he does before he gets to the storm, he talks to the disciples. Can't you the disciples say, Jesus, this is great that you're using this for a little time of Bible study, but can't you do something about the storm? He first rebuked their fear and their unbelief. He did not rebuke waking him up, right? It's not like Jesus is cranky. Don't you ever wake me up like this again. No, 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 no. We shouldn't think that Jesus was in a bad mood from being woken up. No, he was upset at their fear because fear and unbelief go together. When we trust God as we should trust him, there's very little room left for fear. He spoke to the men first. You know why? Because, listen, it is easier to deal with a raging storm than it is to deal with unbelief in the hearts of men. By the way, it's a great story I heard from Gail Irwin about this. Gail Irwin told me the story once about many, many years ago, he was leading a student trip to, uh, to Israel. And, of course, if you ever take a tour of Israel, one of the things you do is you get on the boat and you go putt, 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 you know, across the Sea of Galilee. And they tell the story of Jesus, you know, on the thing and common thing. Well, this just happened to be one of those days when there was a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it wasn't life-threatening like this one that we see here, but it was a storm, you know, and the waves were sort of crashing and the boat was going back and forth and the wind was blowing. And so one of the students that was with him thought, this is my moment. There's the boat chugging along, chug, 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 you know, across the lake, chug, chug, chug. You can hear the motor going, chug, 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 going along the lake. And so the student goes up to the front of the boat, and he goes like this, reaches out his arms, and he goes, peace, be still. And as Gail tells the story, immediately when he said that, the engines on the boat cut out. Oh, that's pretty good, right? The storm didn't do anything, but the boat broke as soon as he said that. Well, you know, listen, if you got power over something, I guess it's better than nothing. That young man had no power over the storm whatsoever, but apparently they had to fix the boat after he said that. What did Jesus rebuke in these men? He said, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? You know, they actually had many reasons to have faith, indeed great faith. They just saw Jesus do some pretty significant miracles, Correct. They just saw an example of great faith with the centurion who trusted Jesus to heal his servant. And, best of all, they had Jesus with them in the boat. His peace should have given them great rest, right? Hey guys, look, I know it looks bad, but look, Jesus is asleep. If he's at peace, we should be at peace. All right, let's ride it out. Let's ride out the storm. They had some reasons for great faith. But instead, Jesus got up, and what did he do? After dealing with the disciples, then it says, he rebuked the winds in the sea. That's very interesting. He didn't just quiet them. He didn't just silence them. He rebuked them. Now this, together with the disciples' great fear, and with what Jesus is going to encounter when the boat lands on the other side of the lake, this leads many people to believe that what Jesus was actually encountering in this storm was a demonic attack, meaning to sink the Son of God in the Sea of Galilee, but he wouldn't allow it. He quieted the storm by rebuking the storm. And so what happened? The men marveled. The disciples were amazed. Such a powerful display over creation led them to ask, Who can this be? It could only be the Lord, Jehovah, who has this power and authority. Let me read to you from Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the ragings of the sea. When waves rise, you still them. And who is that set up? 
That's said of Yahweh, the Lord God, and Jesus is Yahweh. Now, before we leave this and go on to the last section of the chapter, I need to say one more thing. Don't you think it's fascinating that in the span of just a few moments, the disciples saw both the complete humanity of Jesus, there he is asleep in the boat, right? How much more human do you get than sleeping, right? They saw the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus rebuking the winds and the waves just in almost the span of a few moments. Isn't that a marvelous example, just picture of who Jesus is? Fully man and fully God. All right, verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I think it's interesting. Matthew mentions that there were two demon-possessed men. The other Gospels only mentioned one. Now again, I don't think there's a contradiction here. There can be two, and mention only made of one of them. Maybe one of them was much worse in whatever signs of being demon-possessed. Maybe one was much more prominent. But Matthew points out that there was more than one. There was two. And what did they do? They came out of the tombs. That's where they lived. And they came out of the tombs exceedingly fierce. These two unfortunates were very unclean. And I just don't mean physically. What did I tell you? What was more defiling in the Jewish mind than even a leper? A dead body. And that's why for a Jewish man to be living in a cemetery was just gross beyond imagination for the Jewish mind. They were unclean because of their contact with the dead and they displayed fierce, uncontrollable behavior. The demons drove these men to live among the tombs. Why? Well, first of all, as I just said, because the graveyards and the dead were terribly unclean and offensive to the Jewish people. I think it was also because demons loved death. It's because this was no proper place for men to live. And that's what demons want to do. They want to make men less human. It's because it made these men more frightening to other people. How scary is it to see crazy men running out of a cemetery? But just as well, too, I think that the demons drove these men to live in the tombs because it encouraged superstition in other people, fearing that these men were actually possessed with the spirits of the dead people in the graveyard. It encouraged this kind of superstition. So the demons loved to drive these men towards this bizarre behavior. And what happened? Did you notice what happened when they cried out? It's there in verse 29, very powerful. Suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? What have we to do with you? I think it's fascinating. First of all, that they knew who Jesus was. Just go back a couple verses. Look at verse 27. What do the disciples say? Who is this guy? That's what the disciples say. Who can this be? What do the demons say? It's Jesus, the Son of God. At this point, the demons know more about who Jesus is than the disciples do. But the second thing, look at what the demons asked. The demons tormenting these poor men, they wanted 
to be left alone. Listen, I want you to notice, this is a demonic cry in the heart of man. When man looks at God and says, God, leave me alone. That's what demons want. They just want to be left alone by God. They want to ignore him. They, they want to just say, God, have nothing to do with me. Leave me alone. We want to torment these men without your interference. God, don't interfere in my life or in our work one bit. And then they say something remarkable there. It's also in verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? These demons also knew of their immediate destiny. They knew that Jesus was going to cast them out. They knew it. But they also knew of their ultimate destiny. Their ultimate destiny was to suffer everlasting torment. And they wanted the freedom to do as much damage as they could do before the time, before their destiny of torment. By the way, doesn't this tell you as well that the demons understood that they had limited time and therefore, they wanted to make the most use of their time. Look, I can't compliment demons on much, but I can compliment demons on this. They understand that their time is limited, and they work hard to make the most of the limited time they have. Would that we, in that respect alone, would have the wisdom of demons. What does Jesus do? Verse 30. Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Now, both Jewish people and Gentile people populated the region of Galilee. So this might have been a herd of pigs that was owned by Gentiles. But most commentators believe that because the pigs were unclean for Jews, they shouldn't have been there even if a Gentile man owned them. So what did these demons say to Jesus? If you cast us out, let us go into the herd of swine. The demons wanted to enter the swine because these evil spirits are bent on destruction and they hate to be idle. They want to do something. They want to do some kind of damage. They didn't say, Woo, you're going to cast out this man? Great, we finally get a vacation. You know, it's hard work driving these demons, driving these two men to do all these sort of crazy things and giving them excessive strength. We're, we're so desperate. Thank you for the vacation, Jesus. No, they wanted to be active. Did you notice something here? Very wonderful. Demons can't even afflict pigs without the permission of God. Isn't that amazing? A, a, a legion of de devils did not have power over a herd of hogs. How can anybody believe that they have authority over the sheep of Jesus Christ? Well, when they came out, they ran in the herd of swine. The whole herd of swine ran violently, and they perished in the water. There's nothing really comparable to this in the Bible, the casting of demons from a human into animals. Yet Jesus had a good reason to allow this. Why did he allow this? He allowed this to display what the murderous intent of these demons was. This is what these demons wanted to do to the men. They wanted nothing but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
And Jesus showed this very powerfully by allowing them to go into the pigs. By the way, it also showed very conclusively that the demons had left the men, right? If they had gone into the pigs. I think it's amazing here. When the devil drives you, you run pretty hard, right? And you run to your destruction. This is what it's like to be driven by the devil. Now, the people hear about this, right? These two notorious demon-possessed men are delivered of their demons. And what do you think the reaction is of the crowd? Look here at verses 33 and 34. Then those who kept them fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? The whole city comes out to meet Jesus. Do you understand what's happening here? What's happening is that Jesus has totally unified the city, and it's a city-wide prayer meeting, right? The work of Jesus has totally unified the city, and everybody in the city comes out to come and talk to Jesus, right? Isn't this wonderful? The whole city sees the miraculous works of Jesus. They're unified. They come out in what you might call a united prayer meeting to talk to Jesus. That's the good news. What's the bad news? Look at the last line of verse 34. What did they tell Jesus to do? And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. We would think that the people of the region would be happy that these two demon-possessed men were delivered. But they weren't happy. Perhaps they were more interested in pigs than in people. Certainly, the delivering power of Jesus did not make these men feel comfortable. I find it amazing. The work of Jesus had unified the whole city and they had come out to meet and to talk with Jesus, but it wasn't in a good way. Their citywide prayer meeting was a prayer meeting to ask Jesus to leave. I want you to see this. This is a good little microcosm for us to leave on, a good little picture of a lot of things in life. The demons leave the men, go into the herd of swine, and the swine go run off a cliff and they're all destroyed. Good thing or bad thing? Was it the work of God that killed the swine, or was it the work of the devil? Well, you start scratching your head on that one, right? Oh, well, Jesus allowed them to go, but it was the demons who did it. Was the work of God, was it the work of the devil? Start scratching your head, and we could come up with answers on that, but I want to say, so. in one sense, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant whether or not you say it was the work of God, or it's the work of the demons. This is what I want you to notice. Jesus wanted to use this occasion for something, right? What did Jesus want to use this occasion for? To deliver those demon-possessed men and to give them a new life. And he did. But the demons also wanted to use it for something. And what did they do? They said, listen, even if we can't have the men, and even if we kill the pigs, we're going to make these people want Jesus to go away. And that's what happened. That might have been some of the motive of the demons in asking to go into the swine. We'll get the people of the city to ask Jesus to leave. And that would be a little victory for them in the midst of a big defeat. This is what I want you to see. Sometimes in our Christian life, we waste way too much time trying to figure out, is this God doing this or is this the devil doing it? No, no, no. Once you put a pause button on that question, right? Instead of trying to figure out, is God doing this or is the devil doing this? Ask this question. How does God want to use this situation and how does the devil want to use it? Because God wants to use that situation. In one sense, I just want to say, and please understand, I'm just saying this in a sense, okay? You understand? In a sense, 
It doesn't matter if it's God doing it or if it's the devil doing it because God wants to use it for his glory and the devil wants to use it for his and your shame. So just look to that. Lord, I don't know why I'm in this circumstance. I don't know if this is you. I don't know if this is the devil. But I know that you want to glorify yourself in this situation and that's what I want to see. And then to recognize yourself, to not be ignorant of the devices of Satan he wants to use it for his own terrible work. Well, that gives us a good place to stop tonight and to pray. Father, we pray that you'd give us discernment. Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to not be ignorant of the devices of Satan and that we would be aware, Lord, that in every situation, even when we can't figure out whether the cause is from you or the cause is from Satan, Lord, we know that you are in control of all things ultimately and you want to use every situation for your glory. And we know that Satan is a perverting monster who wants to twist every situation to his own evil advantage. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom to see through his strategies and, Lord, to promote your good and glorious kingdom and to work against the nefarious works of Satan. Help us to do that, Lord, and to bring great glory to you and to your work on this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.